So Mark 10, uh, we're going to kick off a little summer mini-series that I've titled One Thing. Uh, now for those of you who maybe been around, I think actually it'd just be your freshman, uh, Pastor Stephen had done a, a, mess, or a series of messages called uh, One Thing is Needful. Um, this is not the same study. This is actually based upon, like I had said in my prayer, uh, a lot of your guys' camp commitments as I read them over the past week, week and a half. I was really blown away by how many of you guys said very, very similar things. And as I looked back at the camp commitments, there's nothing on there that says commit to one thing. It just was, again, talking about something specific and something that is measurable. It doesn't mean that it had to only be one thing, but I was kind of blown away by how many of you, the Spirit of God was working in you at camp to say things like, I'm going to grow a relationship with one peer at a time, or I'm going to witness to one person, I'm going to invite one person to church, I'm going to evangelize one time per week, I'm going to lead one friend to Christ, I'm going to put God first, talk to one person at church for fellowship per week, uh, again, share the gospel once per week, read one paragraph per day, personal prayer journal, writing in that one time per week. Again, over and over and over again, there just seemed to be this focus on one thing, on one single focus, one single-minded objective that many of you seem to have. And even as I was looking at some of your guys' cards that you filled out last week, your prayer cards, talking about what it was that you needed prayer on or a current struggle of yours, a lot of you guys had asked for prayer in keeping your camp commitments. So I don't think it's having any coincidence that God kind of laid this, this study out here for us to cover uh, over, I think there's going to be about four or five messages over the course of the summer, just with everything else we have going on. Uh, there will be one week that I'm out because of Mexico that I believe, Rick, it's you, right? Or is it Andy Sunday? I can't remember anyways. It'll be Rick or Andy. Um, but one of those Sundays they'll be teaching. But one thing that I, no pun intended, that I found very, very fascinating is that phrase, one thing. It shows up just a small handful of times in the Bible. And every single time that it does, it's something that was very, very critical that you needed to hear. In other words, it didn't matter what else was going on. There may be many things that each and every single one of you guys need to learn, need to know, need to adapt as part of your walk. But Christ or Paul or the psalmist or whoever says it, they say, hey, look, amidst all that, just focus on one thing. One thing is needful. One thing thou lackest. One thing. It's a very, very interesting study when you look at that. And it really helps us. And that's why I thought this picture just beautifully represented that. Because so often in our Christian walks in our lives, we tend to complicate things. We tend to make things very convoluted. We tend to make things more than what they need to be. And in the midst of all the things it might seem like you and I need to work on, we need to just focus on one thing. Whatever that camp commitment is, that's your one thing. And I think as you'll find when we go through these four or five messages, whatever it is you put down as your camp commitment to one way or another, even if it's something that's an obstacle or even if it's something that you put on your index card last week of a prayer request or a current struggle, or even a Bible study topic, I think you'll find that the answer will be in the course of one of these four or five messages. But on your outline there for the introduction, true biblical Christianity was always supposed to be simple. 
Always. I mean, Mark chapter 10, look at verse 15. Christ is talking and he, he's wanting for the children to come near him. And the disciples are like, no, no, no. Don't let these diseased kids touch him. This is the Messiah. This is the Lord. And Jesus says in verse 15, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God. What's that next word? All right, so everyone in verse 15 of Mark chapter 10, I know we're tired. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God. What's that next word? Yes. What does that word mean? It's a very important word, right? We talked about this in the rules of Bible study. Like and as might just be the two most important words in your entire Bible. A lot of people take this verse and say, hey, see, this is why we need to baptize and sprinkle babies because they need to receive the kingdom of God while they're a child. That's how they take this verse. No, no, no. He's saying as because it's a comparison. It's a simile. What is a child like? Many of you who saw it this week, you got to see children are very simple. It's very simple-minded. Jesus is letting us know here, hey, you know what? You need to have a childlike faith. You need to have childlike simplicity when it comes to receiving the gospel. You need to have humility is what he's saying here. Anyone who comes to Christ and wants to be saved and they're not humble because they, don't see, they truly don't understand the gospel then. They don't see their sinfulness in the midst of a holy and perfect God. That's what he's talking about here. Not only that, 2 Corinthians 11.3, we've looked at it several times before, but Christ talks, or Paul talks about that the gospel, it's simple, the simplicity that is found in Christ. Christianity was always supposed to be simple. Back on your intro. We have a knack for making things more complicated than they should be. In times like that, we need to be reminded of the easy truths found in God's word. Proverbs 14.6 says, Knowledge is easy to him that understandeth. No, it doesn't say the Christian life is easy. It says knowledge is easy if you have understanding. Rather than trying to tackle multiple issues in our lives all at once, it is best for us to focus on one thing one day at a time and give God our full undivided attention to that one thing before moving on to the next. So the title of today's message is One Thing Thou Lackest, and we're going to stay in Mark chapter 10. But jump down to verse 17. We'll pick up here in the story of the rich young ruler. Verse 17, and when he was gone forth into the way, interesting choice of words there, there came one running, kneeled to him, and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. That's a new one. So, so a quick note on that one. I had actually looked this one up. I was like, wait a second. Defraud not. That, I guess that's the same as don't bear false witness, don't lie. But why would he repeat himself? You know what's interesting about that? We know from the parallel gospel passage in Luke 18 that this is a rich young ruler. It doesn't say it here in Mark, but it does in Luke 18. He's a ruler. And according to Leviticus 19 in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you know what rulers or judges who ruled back then were, were accustomed to doing? Defrauding and ripping off their own people. And in Leviticus 19, God gives a specific law, a specific commandment, telling them, you better not do that to your own people. You better not rip them off and defraud them or commit fraud against them. So you see, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's the entirety of the law of God. 
Ten Commandments is a good place to start, but there's another 600 laws that are in the Old Testament that if you are not saved and if you have lost family members and friends, they're going to have to give an account for each and every single one of those. Judgment day is going to be a long day. And he says in verse 20, And he, the rich young ruler, answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Hmm. We're going to pause here for a second and go back to our outline. But there was something that I noticed about this man here. And this is just one of those things where you just realize that as you go slower through the Bible, I I am such a big proponent of, you guys don't need to, don't feel like you need to put a, a time limit on God, especially you reading your Bibles. You don't have to do three chapters. Go slow. When you read it slower, even if you only go through one or two verses a day, things stand out to you. When you read verse 17 slow, like I did, you see things that are, again, just pop out to you. Number one, Christ was in the ways with the disciples. They're in the way, the way that they should be. Then there came one running. He's eager. He's excited. You can even say he's passionate. Not only that, he kneeled to Christ. He got down in front of everybody, showing everybody I worship him. Not only that, he called him a beautiful title, Good Master. He was really good at talking like someone should talk when they come before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was completely and utterly transfixed on doing good things. You know, point number one eagerness. Outward worship, God talk, and works are all traits of religious people. But I presented it in the way that I did for a reason. Because if we're being honest, and it might take a, a bit for you guys to, to, to think on this one. Everything that we just saw there, is it really any different from us? A lot of us have an eagerness to serve God. A lot of us have outward expressions of our worship that are seen by others. A lot of us are really good at God talk, talking the talk, saying buzzwords around this church that we know that we've grown up hearing. And a lot of us are really good at doing good things. So yeah, this is talking about religious people, but... If we're not careful, this could also be talking about us. There might be somebody in this room right now that this is describing. But I thought about something else, too. What's happening? Oh, no. What's going on with the PowerPoint slide? There we go. In Revelation 3, 14 and 15, Jesus is talking about a church, and he says, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy, what? That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I, this is Jesus Christ speaking, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And note what he says next. Because 
thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, he's talking about this church, and this church is, is lukewarm. They're putrid. They are pukey. They're not completely committed to one thing. They're all over the place. And as a result of it, they get nothing done for Jesus Christ, and it actually makes him want to throw up. But not only that, this church, and really what these churches represent, as we've studied it out before, they represent time periods. He's not just describing... Christians during the time and day and age in which you and I live, he's describing people as a whole in the church and out of the church. And the character trait he uses to describe them is that they say and think they're one thing, but they are something completely and utterly different, and they don't even realize it. Are we talking about other people or may we be talking about ourselves? You see, back on your outline, there's only one thing lacking among them, lacking among religious people. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Side note, that word lackest, you know how God also uses that exact word in our Bible? That word lackest, it literally is also used as the phrase, come short. What does that remind you of? Hmm? I heard it around here. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short the glory of God. You could read that as, for all have sinned, and they're lacking the glory of God. They come short. It's the same meaning. He says, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he, the, the rich young ruler, was sad at that saying, and went away grieved. Why? For he had great possessions. Anybody notice what commandments weren't shown? When Christ went through it, verse 19, don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness. We already talked about defraud and honor thy father and mother. That's five there. Ah, but yet we just saw here, the young man went away grieved because he had many possessions. That's covetousness. That's the 10th commandment. And we know from Colossians 3, 5, that covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. Well, there's the first commandment right there. I should have no other God beside me. That's, and even a graven idol. Money was his idol. What he had said about it. So there's the second one. And I would even argue from verse 18 when Jesus said, Why callest thou me good, good? There's none that doeth good except one, that's God. I would even say that he's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Christ is revealing to him, hey, you don't really know who I am. You're calling me a good teacher. You know how many people on this planet that you go to school with right now believe Jesus Christ was just a good man, nothing more? A good teacher? That's what he just called him. He's not. He's God in human flesh. And you cross-reference Matthew chapter 6 with this, and you know what you'll find? You'll find a lot of people, religious people, 
doing God talk when they pray, and they just pray empty, vain words. It's vain repetitions. In Exodus, it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You know what vain means? It's empty. It has no significance, no meaning behind it. How does that work today in our day and age? Father God, I just want to thank you, Lord God, for this day, Lord, and everything that you, Lord God, give us. And Father, Daddy, God, and Lord, I just want to thank you for uh, VBS, God, and uh, God the Father, and Lord Jesus, I just pray that we would have a great day, Lord God. And God, Lord, Lord God, you, you are the God of the Lord, Lord God. And not making fun of everybody who prays. Sometimes people are just in experience of praying publicly, and that's okay. It comes with time. But there are a lot of people where it's just vain, it's empty. Good master meant nothing to this guy. So I would argue we are up to nine of the ten. The only one that it doesn't call out here is keeping the Sabbath. I have a feeling this guy was pretty probably solid in that. He was a churchgoer. Probably every single Saturday at Sabbath. Well, it wouldn't be Saturday. Well, yeah, I'm confused. Don't get too much into that. But anyways, he points out all these things to him of what he's, but the one that gets him, the one that he won't let go of is running things his own way. Having his life be his own, he wasn't willing to give it up. And then we look at verse, where are we at? 23. Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Because their pride is so thick. But look at verse 24. I never saw these next three verses like this before. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Now, look up here real quick and be honest with me. Is that really complicated for you guys to get? Oh, yeah, someone who has a lot of wealth, man, it's pretty hard for them because they're rich and increased with goods and they think they have need of nothing. Man, it's really hard for them to get saved. I mean, is that easy for you and I to understand? So why was it such a novel concept for the disciples? What about this would have astonished them? Anybody have any guesses? Rick? Yeah, kind of, but I don't know. All right. Sam? Wasn't Matthew pretty rich? Or like he was a tax collector, and he probably, I think it was alluded to, I'm not sure where, but I think it was alluded to that before he met Christ, he probably ripped off certain people. So he technically wouldn't be rich under a righteous means. Mm-mm. But by and large, what were these disciples? They were just common fishermen. So they weren't that. Yeah, Kendall. Maybe because they like, saw this guy at church or like, saw him working. Hmm. And then they were astonished he wasn't following him. Maybe. Heather? Kind of going piggybacking off hers. Maybe he was a good tither. Maybe he was one that supported these things and showed everything right on the outside. And they probably knew him. Hmm. It wasn't just a man. Yeah, Rick? So I was going to say, I mean, you talk about these guys being fishermen. If you've been around fishermen, I've been around a pretty broad spectrum of you know, mindsets, personalities, whatnot. Yeah. They're, they don't understand that mm -mm. mindset. 
They they live. Their guys are like construction workers. Guys that are in these trades, they live for the day, and a lot of times they live for the buzz. Yeah. So, you know that mindset doesn't understand it. They're no. Rich people, business people, and they carry themselves differently. Mm-hmm. You talk with them, they speak differently. Not even that they're educated. They just mm-hmm. you're around them, and there's something different about mm-hmm. them. One of the some of the times when the conversations I'll have them, and you know that they're lost. Those verses always come to my mind. They're rich and in need of nothing, and you can witness it to them. And they're just like, you know what? That's okay. Mm-hmm. If Jesus works for you, that's great. Exactly. Yeah. I'm okay, and they genuinely mean that. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Yeah. All good things. Keep reading, though. Verse 24. Jesus answered. They were astonished at his words. <laughs> look at that. Jesus answers again. He doesn't really change much, but look how he says it. Children. How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Again, no pun intended, but beating a dead horse, beating a dead camel to death, or shoving it through the eye of a needle. That'd be brutal. That's graphic. He's making this picture show you it is very difficult. And yet still, we get this, right? Makes sense to us. Yet still, verse 26, and they were astonished out of measure. It means exceedingly. It means, hey, if we were astonished before, our minds are even fuller blown now. The word astonished, it it comes from, it means astonied. It means you're like a stone. Their jaws were dropped. That's what it was. Why? I started thinking about this, and I'll be honest. I, it could be a, a plethora of many of these things, but I started thinking, hmm. So he, in verse 15, he talks about receiving Christ as a child, the humility there. Childlike humility. Seeing your need for a Savior, your need to be taken care of. And then there's this guy who, yeah, he's a little bit better off, but... Talks, acts, looks, speaks, just like us. How hard is it for someone who has physical riches to get into heaven? Or maybe they're also thinking, how harder is it, how much harder is it for someone who thinks they have spiritual riches to get into heaven? This guy thought he was good. This guy thought that he was well off. This guy thought there is not a moment of hesitation. This good master, he is going to say, hey man, you've already achieved it. You achieved it years ago. You prayed one point, man, you're saved. You're good to go. You even look the part on the outside. You even sound like you're with us. And I think the disciples were seeing, huh? If it's hard for someone with physical riches to be saved, how harder is it for someone who thinks they have spiritual riches to be saved? You realize that, again, this passage here in Revelation 3, it's describing the day and age in which we live. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that this day and age is the most perilous time in all of human history. It's the worst, in other words. 
Are you on the run for your faith? Are you, are you scared of being martyred? Anybody watch their parents get martyred for their faith in front of their very eyes? Anybody watch their kids get martyred for their faith? Everything that happened to people who believe the exact same things you and I do 200, 300, 400 years ago? No. But there's a problem. Because we are so, maybe not physically wealthy, but we have a lot in our day and age and in our society. And we have even more so of churches that have convinced people, hey, you're okay. They've convinced them that they're spiritually wealthy. They've convinced them that because you've prayed a prayer at one point in time, you're okay. You're fine. The Bible says we need to examine ourselves daily. The Bible says we need to work out our own salvation, whether ye be in the faith or not. Now, once you've made that decision of assurance, and you're like, okay, I know for sure I am, then rest in that. But there has been way too much of, uh, again, as I said earlier, knowledge is easy, but salvation, it's simple and it's free, but it shouldn't be easy. Simple, yes. Free, yes. But how many times did Christ tell people to count the cost? That's why the bullet point on your outline there, true, genuine salvation Though free, freely offered, free as in you don't need to do anything for it, free and simple, it does cost something. A couple pages back, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to what I have to say in Mark 8. Here's what Christ said. For whosoever will save his life shall what? Lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. You see, there must be an exchange of something. Salvation does cost you something. Freely given from Christ, but it's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you your life. The way up is down. You need to humble yourself as a child and see your need for a Savior. You must humble yourself. You must lay down your will. You must exchange for the free gift of salvation. You must give or pay by giving over your will. This rich young ruler didn't want to do that. He wanted all the blessings that came with salvation, but doing it his way. Is that maybe you? Where you've grown up in this church wanting all the blessings of eternal life and salvation, but you've wanted it your way? Have you ever come to a point where you realized, I'm really no different. I may not have physical wealth, but man, I've grown up my entire life thinking that because I prayed that prayer, I have the riches of Jesus Christ, the eternal riches. I am increased with goods of his word and I'm all set. Is that what you say? Is that what you think? And do you not realize 
that maybe, spiritually speaking, you are completely and utterly bankrupt. What evidence do you have to show it? That's what Christ wanted this rich young ruler to realize, that, hey, you have it all together on the outside. You know the words to speak because you grew up in the church, excuse me, synagogue. Hmm. Grew up in the church knowing all the right words to say, knowing how to act when you're around these people, but how not to act when you're around these people. You know exactly all the ins and outs of it, but you've never surrendered your will. Maybe if you have no fruit in your life that shows your Christ and that you belong to Him, maybe your salvation wasn't genuine. What's your life like? Next, this one thing that lacketh, it wasn't just for salvation, though. It was to the rich young ruler, but keep in mind who also was in the audience, the disciples. And maybe that's another reason why they were astonished, because look how he ends verse 21. Talks about for the, the, the rich young ruler, sell, give of yourself, give your will away, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. But look how he ends it. And come, take up the cross and follow me. What's a one word response for follow me? A follower of God is a disciple. Understand something, and this is where the church, not necessarily ours, but just Christianity today, has completely diverted. When Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he said, Come unto me, he meant, Come and abide with me. Come and stay, in other words. Because in Matthew 11, he follows that up with, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in spirit. That's what he means. Discipleship was always supposed to go hand in hand with salvation. And I'm not talking about student journey lessons. I'm talking about being a follower who takes up his cross daily. And for many, that's a cost that they're not willing to part with. They're not willing to give up. Maybe that's also why the disciples were astonished because the Spirit of God was speaking to them directly about what they needed to hear from that. Look at verse 28, Mark chapter 10. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, and persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. Real quick, I want you to go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 18. You don't need to hold your place here in Mark. Again, I said Luke 18 is Luke's account of this story. And what's neat about his perspective is because that passage in Mark that we just read, it's a little tricky. Luke kind of helps shed light on what it is that Christ was actually saying here. It'll make a whole lot more sense when we see it. Because it sounded like Peter was saying, hey, we've left all and followed thee. And God's like, yeah, no, you haven't. No man has. It sounded like that, right? Well, here's how Luke had put it. Luke 18, look with me in verse 28. 
Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto him, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake. Okay, that sounds very familiar to what we just read. But look how he switches it up in verse 30. Who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting? In other words, Christ is telling them, hey, you guys have left all and forsaken thee, but guess what? I'm not going to leave you bankrupt. I'm not going to leave you without wealth. Oh, yes, Lord, we know that we're going to receive crowns in heaven one day. No, 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 no. You guys are missing it. Those who forsake everyone, those who forsake all for my sake to follow me whithersoever the lamb goest, I'm going to take good care of you here on this earth and in the kingdom to come. That's discipleship. And that's the blessing and the riches of discipleship. That is wealth. Again, it's the great paradox. The rich young ruler thought that he needed to have it all on the outside in order to have it all in the inside. Christ is saying, no, you need to give everything away of yourself, including your stubborn will, and then you'll have it all. And for those of you who are believers, when you continue to give all away and forsake all, to follow me, then I'm going to make you very, very wealthy spiritually. And as we just saw here, physically also. See, the disciples, first bullet point, absolute surrender is the evidence of biblical discipleship. Luke 14, says, Look, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. I remember when this became very, very evident to me in 2003. In 2003 was when the building that sits on 3737 13th Street in Perry Township, Madison, Ohio, ceased to become a school to me. It never became a school for me after that point. That was my land. That was my land where there were giants there that needed slain for the gospel's sake. Because I realized how much Jesus Christ loved me and how much he pursued after me, although I just wanted to stay. Hey, thanks for the blessing of eternal life. Now I'm going to do things my way. And when he finally threw me on my face at summer camp and I realized I cannot go back the same that building ceased to become a school. It was my mission field. And it meant that whatever it was that I ended up doing, whether it was speech and debate or whether it was if I wanted to go back and try out again for the baseball team, I realized that whatever it was that I did, I was there to seek and to save that which was lost. Not all the other things. It was the mindset of Whatever it is that you are gifted and talented in, do it. Baseball, sure. Soccer, absolutely. Drama, go for it. Band, have at it. Dance, whatever the case is. But you now have a mindset that this isn't because I enjoy this and it's fun. This isn't because I'm going to get a scholarship out of this. It is because of the sole purpose that there are lost souls there that I need to reach. And it's no longer about me. 
That's what discipleship is. And when you have that mindset, you don't care if you end up finishing with a 3.4 grade point average. Because, oh, that's right, <laughs> I forgot. While I'm doing all these things, I also have to go to class and take tests and things like that, like it is a school. Perspective shift. Mindset change. Because you realize, I, I, I couldn't even tell you for the life of me if 3.4 was the GPA I ended it with. I couldn't tell you for the life of me. I knew it was very mid. But what I do remember, the only openly gay kid, because back then there was only one openly gay kid, who because it was the early 2000s, you're like, ugh, avoid. You didn't talk with him, but that kid comes up at the end and says, hey, I know that Christianity means that you are Christ-like. And you, Corey, have been nothing but that to me. I avoided that kid. I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't want anybody to think that, oh, he's being friendly to the gay kid. Is Corey secretly gay? I didn't want any of those things. So I avoided the kid. And he says that to me. I did nothing for that. Unless you think I'm boasting on myself. No, no, no. Because, as I've said before, that mindset that I had towards that mission field, I lost when I went to college, started working more full-time, did the Bible Institute, was helping lead VBS with Stephen, was discipling, was being discipled, was discipling a junior hire also in that, when I started getting convoluted in Christianity instead of focusing on one thing, one day at a time. And I lost that mindset. And then even when I entered the workforce full-time, I still struggle to get that mindset back. We can be very good at convoluting Christianity instead of focusing on one thing. Whatever it is we're gifted at, wherever it is we go to school, whoever we're surrounded with, we are there to see the lost saved and the saved grow by following the Lamb whithersoever He goes. Don't convolute and complicate Christianity. You have a lot of things going on right now. One camp commitment, one day at a time. Focus on that. For some of you, maybe it is salvation. Maybe you realized, I don't really have a lot of evidence that shows that I'm a believer. For others, it's discipleship. And maybe for those of you I am talking about starting the student journey lessons. Maybe that's what God's speaking to you on. But for others, maybe you've been through the student journey lessons, but you're not a follower of God. That's what we're talking about. You see, what the disciples appear to lack, they make up for in spiritual wealth and blessings. The less you have of something here as a disciple, the more you have in blessings, both here and later. Again, it's a great paradox. You see, true, genuine discipleship is more than simply going through lessons and memorizing verses. And it also comes at a great cost. We've gone through Luke 9, I think actually just last Sunday. We've gone through it before. It's, it's that, those passage where that man comes up to Christ and says, hey, I'll follow you wherever, wherever you go. And Christ says, hey, foxes have 
holes in the ground. Birds have nests in the air. Son of man hath nowhere to lay his head. You know what Christ is telling us there? He's saying, hey, follow me even though it'll be uncomfortable and tiring. Is your faith uncomfortable at times? And is it tiring? Ask yourself that. It can be very easy to say yes because we just came off VBS and we're all exhausted and hit. Look beyond this. Think about October. Think about November. Think about February and March. Is your faith uncomfortable? Is it tiring? That's discipleship. Then the next guy comes along and he says, Lord, I'll follow you, but hey, let me go first and bury my dad. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury the dead. That's pretty harsh when you think about it. That's our Lord. He didn't mince words there. You know what that's saying? Hey, follow me, although it's going to be heartbreaking. Some of you might be experiencing that now. Do you experience heartache in your walk with Christ? It's a mark of discipleship. But I've been through student journey. I'm a disciple. This is discipleship. Then the last guy comes, hey, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go say goodbye to my family at least. And Jesus, once again, pulling no punches. Hey, no man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit to follow me. In other words, what Christ is saying is follow me right away with no hesitation. Do you do that? Or are there terms and conditions to your service? I'll sign up for this. I'll do this. But few lists of demands in this hostage negotiation here, Christ. Look at the fine print on my contract before we sign it. It's not discipleship. See, it comes at a cost. Last thing, the very next verse in Mark 10, it says, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them. (laughs) I love it. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. I don't know what effect today's message had on you. I'm hoping and praying that it produces a healthy fear of God. Of examining, am I just all okay on the outside? Or do I have general, genuine internal and eternal riches because I am saved? And am I a follower of Christ? So a couple questions. And understand something. I wanted to have more time to give you guys to do this. So I'm just going to just hammer this and I'm just going to let the Spirit of God convict you on it. Take time to answer these questions. There's spaces on there. Take time either later today, tonight. You answer these questions and you be as honest as God wants you to be. 
You be as honest as you want to be with him, however much you're willing to give. But ask yourself, are you absolutely certain of where you would spend eternity? I would imagine, by and large, most of you would say yes. So follow-up question, what evidence exists that you're a child of the king? I want you to put down what evidence exists on that space there. Prove it. If anything to yourself for the assurance, or maybe you'll find I can't come up with anything. Second question, are you a follower of God or still just a believer? Follow-up question that I want you to physically put down. There's something different about when you actually put it down on paper and you could see it, your own handwriting from your own heart. What does your walk with Christ cost you? It doesn't have to be lately. Think about since the moment you decided to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. What does your faith cost you? Number three, are you coming up short or lacking in any of the above? And focus on just one thing. Some of you put out on your cards, what, it, what does it mean to be completely sold out for Christ? What does it mean to give completely everything away? How do we do it? Today's lesson right here. That'll do it. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for getting us through it. And man, very different message for a Sunday morning. But Lord, you set the agenda. I didn't. Lord, I'm sorry for uh, losing my focus after high school. But I convinced myself that I still kept the focus because of all the other godly things I was doing and didn't even realize I was just complicating my own Christianity, my own walk, by adding this thing and that thing and by trying to do so many things instead of just keeping focused on one thing one day at a time. Lord, I thank you that you broke me from that. Lord, I pray that as us as a youth ministry that you continue to grow us, not necessarily in numbers. I pray you'd grow us in depth. I pray we would go deeper in our walks with you from the truths that we found in today's lesson. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.